Big Issues, Big Names, an interview every month. It's Not That Simple, a podcast from Francisco Manuel dos Santos Foundation. It's a pleasure to be back for another episode of It's Not That Simple from the Fundação Francisco Manuel dos Santos. And I think it's been clear for all of us to see that we are in a climate emergency. All it takes is to turn on the news any day to see reports of record temperatures, wildfires, floods, wherever it may be on the planet. And it will be a privilege to discuss this topic of climate change with one of the experts uh, uh, in it. Bill McGibbon is an environmentalist, an author, a journalist who has been writing about this topic since the late 80s. His first book on the matter dates back to 1989. So he is the right person to share his insight, his expertise on what the problem is right now with climate change and also what the solutions can be. It's a pleasure to have an opportunity to speak with you today. You're someone who's so experienced in all matters that involve climate change. And to kick off the conversation, I have to ask you, why is this topic not that simple? Well, the science is simple. You burn coal and gas and oil, you put carbon in the air, it heats up the planet. But getting off coal and gas and oil is going to be the biggest task probably that humans have ever undertaken because it lies at the absolute heart of our economy. And so ditching it for something else is no easy task. No doubt about that. And I opened the show by saying that we're really going through a, a terrible time when it comes to high temperatures, record temperatures, uh, uh, natural disasters uh, caused by not only uh, uh, fires, but floods. Um, I think it's 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 nearly impossible to turn on the TV these days and not see something happening with our planet. So I also wanted as a, a, an introductory phase of the conversation here to ask you, what do you think of the state of the planet is? And are these images, are these fires, are these floods what the human being needed to see in order to wake up to the climate emergency? Well, it's possible that that is what we needed to see. You know, I wrote the first book about climate change uh, came out back in 1989. And we knew then all really that we know now. We understood what was going to happen. But that warning wasn't taken seriously. Uh, the fossil fuel industry helped make sure that it wasn't taken seriously by mounting this huge campaign of disinformation over three decades. But now, now the evidence is, is just so much in everybody's face that it's impossible to deny the fix that we're in. Uh, and the pictures are tragic everywhere. We've seen the pictures of the extraordinary fires in Portugal. Um, um, and of course, the damage is worst in the places that have done the least to cause this fix that we're in. So we're in a, um, we're in a very difficult spot right now. The only hope is that these dire images will finally spur the action that we really should have taken decades ago. I'm going to try during our conversation to be as objective and practical as possible, because I think there have been so many theoretical conversations about the planet and climate change, et cetera, that we're really in, a, in, a, in an era of action. So uh, uh, being quite specific about this year, Bill, what have we learned this year? 2022, the state of the planet is? Well, two things. One, the state of the planet is overheated. Uh, we've raised the temperature of the Earth one degree Celsius, a little more so far. 
that's been enough to cause extraordinary change. Half the sea ice in the summer Arctic has melted. The oceans have begun to rise quickly. Most of all, the hydrological cycle of the planet, the way that water moves around is already profoundly disrupted. Uh, warm air holds more water vapor than cold. That's the most important physical fact of the 21st century. And it means that in arid areas, you get more evaporation. That means more drought. That means more fire. When that water comes down and it comes down in wet areas, you get huge rainstorms and enormous floods. And we see those everywhere. So that's state of the planet number one. State of the planet number two is more hopeful. 2022 has seen the continuing, indeed, record falls in the price for renewable energy. The sun, the wind, and the batteries to store them are now the cheapest forms of power on planet Earth. And that is a very, very good thing. It's our exit out of this crisis if we take it fast. For Portugal, that, that that's great to hear because sun, check, wind, check. Um, but how fast are we moving? And what do the private sector and the government have to do to work independently and together to get it going faster? Well, pace is exactly the right question because we have to, at this point, to move very, very fast. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's scientific experts on climate, have told us that we need to cut emissions in half by 2030, not to stop climate change, too late for that, but to stop it from going past two degrees Celsius eventually. If we do, if we keep heading in the direction we're heading in on our current trajectory, then we're going to do damage from which civilizations can't recover. But we have the possibility to move much, much, much more quickly. And what we need is for governments to stop doing what they've in too many cases done, uh, uh, serve the interests of the fossil fuel industry, and instead uh, set up the 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 process, the possibility for very rapid transition to renewable energy. We're starting to see that happen, even here in the United States, which has been the most recalcitrant of countries. We're beginning to see some real movement finally. Let's hope that it can accelerate because we are in a race, a race really with physics. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the states, and I want to get into the role of, of superpowers in this because they're, they're so influential, not only from a a cultural standpoint, a social standpoint, but obviously a financial standpoint. I lived in the States for, for nine years. I saw uh, 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 really a mentality when it comes to vehicles, especially, you know, the bigger, the better. Gas guzzlers everywhere. People really never paid that much attention to it. I'm not saying that in other parts of the world they did, but what's going on in the States first? And what's, what's the role of superpowers when it comes to this transition? Well, so... Historically, for all the reasons that you said, especially America's love of the car culture and the suburbs that grew up around that, America has been by far the biggest contributor of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. No one else will ever catch us. And since that CO2 stays in the air more than 100 years, I mean, that's what's heating the planet now. The other superpower, of course, is China uh, and its big industrialization over the last 15 years has been the second biggest puff of CO2 into the atmosphere after the suburbanization of America. Uh, and it now produces more carbon year on year than anybody else. So the role of these two is absolutely crucial. 
and both of them are show signs of both good and bad things happening. Uh, China is installing more renewable energy than any place on Earth, and by a large margin. It's Chinese factories that have learned how to make this technology cheaply enough for the rest of the world to adopt it. Um, on the same same time, China has obviously burned an awful lot of coal and continues to. The U.S., well, the U.S. has been uh, backsliding from the beginning. It's been the problem, the biggest problem in solving the climate crisis. Uh, the fossil fuel industry is so powerful in our political life that it was able to effectively block the Kyoto Accords and uh, you know, destroy the Copenhagen summit. And then Donald Trump pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accords. But but we've kept mobilizing, kept building movements. Joe Biden now came into power as a climate candidate. It was one of the themes of his election. And really, in the last little while, it looks like he may be making progress. Uh, it feels as if uh, Senator Joe Manchin, who's been the fossil fuel industry spokesman here, has finally yielded to the at least some of the demands of science. And the U.S. may actually pass its first climate legislation ever, setting aside hundreds of billions of dollars to spur, accelerate this transition to renewable energy. If that happens, it will be a strong signal to the rest of the world, and it'll get everybody having to up their game, too. Well, why has that change happened, though, uh, Bill, in the States? Uh, and and many times when I have conversations about climate change with well, in my community, whether that's friends or family, I think there still seems to be a, 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 an idea that, oh, alone, we can't really do anything. But what was the role of the public in, in, in shifting politics in the States? And how can that be an example to other countries to follow suit? Well, what happened... What's happened in the States is that we've systematically built movements over 10 or 15 years. We've understood that the problem is the political power of the fossil fuel industry and that we have to break that political power. And so that's what we've set out to do. We did, for instance, these massive campaigns against new pipelines, this fight over the Keystone pipeline that sent many of us to jail over and over and over again, uh, or this big push that started in the U.S., but it's gone around the world to get institutions to divest their stocks from coal and gas and oil. That's now at about $40 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios and pension funds that have uh, divested from fossil fuel. And that pressure eventually, eventually adds up. It adds up to a how to say this? It adds up to a change in the zeitgeist, a change in people's sense of what's normal and natural and obvious. Ten years ago, what was normal and natural and obvious was fossil fuel. Now people understand that we have to make this switch and we have to make it fast. And at a certain point, that creates so much political pressure that it overwhelms even big oil's ability to manipulate our politics. This fight's not over yet. It won't be over for many years. We've got lots of work to do. But I think what it illustrates is that while 
it's important for us to make changes in our individual lives. Um, you know, my house's roof is covered with solar panels and they connect to an electric car. I'm proud of that. That's not the biggest work. The most important thing an individual can do is be a little less of an individual and join together with others in movements large enough to shift the political and economic ground rules so that we can make truly rapid progress. Well, well, that really is a perfect segue into my my next question, which is the movements you have created, 350.org and now the third act uh, that you're uh, showing now on, on, on the shirt you're wearing. Tell us a little bit about that and why you think they, they're important. Well, so 350.org was the first example of a grassroots global climate movement. I started it 12 years ago with seven college students. And because there was nothing else like it, it caught on very quickly all over the world. Uh, uh, we've organized 20,000 demonstrations in every country on earth except North Korea. And some of them, by the way, have <laughs> been wonderful ones in Portugal. I, I remember remarkable pictures coming in from Porto and from Lisbon and from elsewhere. Um, um, that work has been really important mostly because so many other people then came into this space and started building movements, Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement and among young people in the States. And then the beautiful, beautiful movement uh, that everyone knows about uh, of high school and junior high school students sort of personified by Greta Thunberg. Greta is one of the great people on earth. I love working with her. Uh, but she would be the first to say that the really good news is there are 10,000 Greta Thunbergs scattered around the planet, and they have 10 million followers among young people. That's how many kids were out on climate strike in 2019 before the pandemic hit. I did begin to worry, however, at some point that I heard too many people saying, oh, this is up to the next generation to solve. And that seemed both unfair. I mean, it's really a little much to demand that 17-year-olds, uh, you know, uh, do their homework and also solve the planet's biggest problem. But it also seemed impractical to me for all their intelligence, idealism, energy. Uh, uh, young people lack the structural power to force the changes that we need. So we've started this thing called Third Act that organizes people like me over the age of 60 for action. In the U.S., there are 70 million people over the age of 60, so that's a lot. And we all vote like crazy, so we have a lot of political power. And we ended up with most of the money. Uh, we have about 70% of the financial assets in the country. So if you want to pressure Congress or you want to pressure Wall Street for change, you probably need some older people engaged in this fight. And lots and lots of them are showing up to try and help. We're having a good time uh, not leading this fight. We don't want to. We want to back up the young people who are the natural leaders. Uh, and in so doing, we want to, well, we want to take this abstract word legacy, you know, and make it very concrete. Your legacy is the world you leave behind for the people that you love the most. Uh, there's so many thoughts that were coming into my head while you were saying that. Uh, recently, I had an opportunity to talk on this on this series with, with especially on longevity, and he talked about how human beings were living longer, and therefore there was a larger responsibility to make decisions uh, uh, that obviously involve the planet as well. Uh, I imagine... Part of the role that these organizations and movements have is education. 
because nowadays also, Bill, what, what I see is that there, there, there's so much propaganda out there that it's really difficult, especially on, on digital channels and social media, that it's so difficult to tell the difference from truth and facts to uh, propaganda and opinions, right? And, and the, the line is getting grayer and grayer. What's the importance of that, of, of giving people the facts and giving people the, 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 the numbers? Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a writer, so I've always mm-hmm. yeah. thought that it's highly important to try and just deliver information accurately and honestly. And that's also what movements do. I mean, we called that that worldwide group 350.org because we wanted it to be educational. 350 uh, is the parts, it's the concentration of carbon dioxide in parts per million that scientists say is the most we could safely have in the atmosphere. Sadly, we're already well above it. We're at about 420 parts per million. That's why Portugal catches on fire. You know, it's just too much carbon in the atmosphere. So even with the sort of names of the and ways that we talk about things, it's really important to spread uh, information. And what we understand now from really great investigative reporting is that the fossil fuel industry has spent the last 30 years systematically spreading disinformation. They hired many of the people who used to work for the tobacco industry, uh, uh, you know, telling people that cigarettes were no trouble uh, and set them to work instead, telling them that carbon dioxide was no trouble. And that was effective. That, that propaganda cost us 30 years when we could have been hard at work. It's why we have to move so fast now instead of the more gradual and sensible process we could have had if we'd begun, well, if we'd begun back when I was writing the first book about all this. Yeah, back in, in the late 80s. Uh, I have to ask you about the role of, of, of the, the war in Ukraine um, mm. as far as, as, as raising the awareness of a lot of people regarding the dependency and the dependence on 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 fossil fuel energy, uh, uh, but also uh, in speeding up uh, uh, other options, so clean energy, having that that transition. H- how has that worked? Has that been, I guess, and it's terrible to say in a way, but has that been uh, uh, one of the benefits of this horrible tragedy which is which is happening in Eastern Europe? Well, it's cut both ways. Um, look. The, the Putin's invasion of Ukraine pointed out one of the other huge problems with dependence on fossil fuel. Fossil fuel is only available in a few places. We have a few deposits around the world. Uh, and so the people who sit on top of those deposits end up with a lot of unearned power. <laughs> Look, 60% of Russia's export earnings come from selling oil and gas. They don't really do much else. I mean, go look around your house and try to find something made in Russia. Uh, I bet you won't unless there's an old bottle of vodka sitting in the back of your liquor cabinet someplace. Um, um, basically, they're just a big gas station. And, and so, I mean, it's a real example of why why it would be great to be off fossil fuel because Vladimir Putin or the king of Saudi Arabia or whoever wouldn't have that kind of power. Vladimir Putin can't uh, block the sun. He can't cut off the wind, but he can turn off the gas to Germany. And that's precisely what he's been doing, you know, threatening to do for decades. And it's why nobody stood up to him. Now, now that he's 
done this terrible thing, I do think that it's probably roused uh, Europe to understand that it has to move more quickly. This is going to be a very difficult winter in Northern Europe. There's no question. Um, um, and people are going to suffer and it's going to be economically difficult and all of that. But if we can get through it, if we can get the aid necessary to people to keep them going and so on, then this will have been one of those turning points where the world decides it's the moment to move. Let's talk a little bit about the, the solution and alternative sources of, of energy and, and how cheap or expensive they are. Because, you know, over the last 20 years, one of the reasons that a lot of people uh, used not to get an electric car was that it was more expensive or uh, maybe that the argument could also be made for airplanes and ships and, 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 and mass uh, transport uh, uh, methods. What's it looking like now and what's the role not only of the battery, but also uh, uh, hydrogen and other, other uh, uh, sources of energy? So this is the beautiful news. Scientists have done their job. The last 10 years, they've dropped the price of renewable energy 90%. We live in a kind of miraculous moment when the cheapest way to generate power on planet Earth is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. I mean, that is fantastic to think about. And what it means really is that for the first time in 200,000 years, human beings could conceivably basically bring combustion to an end on this planet. We could stop burning things, stop burning coal and gas and oil, and rely instead on the fact, well, that the good Lord was kind enough to hang a big ball of burning gas 93 million miles away. And we know how to make use of it. We can capture its rays on solar panels. We can take advantage of the fact that the sun differentially heats the earth and thus causes the wind to blow. Um, and now we have the battery technology getting cheaper all the time to store that energy when the wind drops or the sun goes down. This technology is what we're going to depend on. In 20 or 30 years, we may have other things that help to green hydrogen or small modular nuclear reactors that are cheap enough to be useful or so on and so forth. But for the immediate future, the job is clear build solar panels, build wind turbines, build batteries, get us off fossil fuel as fast as we possibly can go. And you obviously interact with a lot of powerful people regarding uh, uh, decision makers and people have influence on decision makers. What's the message that, 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 that you're giving right now, uh, Bill? That this is a tremendous moment of opportunity. We could deal with the climate crisis. We could deal with the autocrats like Putin. And when this sometimes we forget about with fossil fuel, we could stop the 9 million deaths a year, one death in five around the planet that comes from breathing in the byproducts of fossil fuel combustion. We could in our time end those crises simply by making this fundamental switch in the way that we provide energy. There's no longer a technological or an economic obstacle to doing it. The obstacles are inertia and vested interest, and those we can overcome if we work fast, hard, powerfully. That's why we build movements. It's why it's, well, it's why it's such always a, a remarkable sight to see people around the world going into the streets, standing up, demanding this kind of change 
they're the ones that are making the future possible. And my last question is, where, where do you think the planet should be in five years' time? And, and, and is that too an ambitious uh, uh, window to set to, to see concrete changes made? No, five years is just the right time frame. I mean, it's what the scientists are telling us we have to meet. And so what we have to do is sort of what we you know, did in this country at the start of the Second World War. We have to turn all our attention to building that renewable energy just as fast as we can. We did it when it came to building tanks and planes and things to stand up to Hitler. And now we need to do it to stand up to carbon dioxide. Uh, uh, what happens in the next five or six years is really more important than what happens in the next 40 or 50. We have to do this soon because climate change is a timed test. It's not like our other political problems that we deal with or don't decade after decade. This one, uh, you know, once the Arctic melts, no one's got a plan for how you freeze it back up again. Wow. Um, look, we're going to get into uh, uh, the, the quick fire uh, uh, segment of our of our show. And this is where I ask you to uh, answer these questions. And I'm well aware that normally they could take a lot longer to answer. But in in one sentence, in one sentence, uh, I have these these four questions for you. The first is, what is one personality trait a good leader could really benefit from having? Um. And why? Humility, I think, because uh, no one makes these changes on this scale by themselves. The job is to bring as many other people on board as possible. What is the biggest challenge humanity faces today? And I'm, I'm guessing I'm going to ask you this in, in, in context of the topic we've been uh, talking about today. Right. Well, I mean, climate change is the biggest challenge, but within that, the biggest fight is to somehow overcome vested interest. Uh, uh, we've been doing this thing for a, one way for a very long time, and the people who are benefiting from that are therefore very powerful and breaking that power so that science and reason can come to the foreground. That's the challenge. If you could change one thing in the world by magic, just one, though, what would it be? <laughs> Oof. Um, well, I, I'm going to wave my wand and uh, and and uh, put make make every uh, coal-fired power plant a solar farm, and that one thing would get us further than any other single change. And finally, what is the most important learning of your life and career so far that you can share? The most important learning of my life is that most people are good-hearted and that given the opportunity, they will rise to the occasion and do the right thing. And uh, so the job of all of us who try to make that happen is to give people those opportunities to let their best selves show through. Well, Bill, I think that's a, a, a wonderfully hopeful way uh, to uh, to finish this this conversation, it's been an absolute pleasure, privilege to have an opportunity to get your expertise, your insight. Someone who's been uh, really discussing this topic when it wasn't on the global agenda, and 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 is really uh, getting out there and and, and trying to make a, a change whilst we still have a chance to do so. So uh, thanks again. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much. 
fantastic conversation with Bill, and I feel we learned so much about what is happening with our planet today and what can be done to solve it on this episode of It's Not That Simple. See you again soon. It's Not That Simple is a podcast from Francisco Manuel dos Santos Foundation. Tune in every month at ffms.pt or subscribe on the usual platforms.